This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I want to start off by thanking David, who exercised the right and privilege to send us a line via info at radioparallax.com. This is in conjunction with my article reading last week of the piece we dug up from 2007 from Stephen Perlstein. David sent a piece titled, The Junk Debt That Tanked the Economy. It's back in a big way. The punchline to all of this is a lot of people are a little bit nervous uh, about the possibility of repeating the fiasco of 10 years ago. George Will had an article out um, several weeks back the title of which was, Those Who See No Lehman-Like Event Ahead Didn't See the Last One. George Will, a guy we don't often agree with, started off the piece by noting that Eric Severide, 1912-1992, the author and broadcaster, said he was a pessimist about tomorrow, but an optimist about the day after tomorrow. Regarding the American economy, said George Will, prudent people should reverse that. And you know what, we're not going to get into that too much today, but... I can tell you that I have been talking to some people who are as knowledgeable as people can be, I suppose, about the economy and its future. Let's face it, nobody has a crystal ball, which honest people admit to, which honest people admit to. Then again, Mr. Miller points out that uh, Stephen Perlstein looked like he had one back in 2007. At any rate, we're not going to belabor this today, but it's worth exercising caution which is about as useless a statement as one can make, being broad as that is. Good God, are we imitating the Bush administration where they had those various color charts of the danger zone? Oh, we're moving up to red. Now we're going from a blue to a yellow. Watch out. Anyway, let's start on a lighter note. We uh, we were bagging on the New Yorker magazine not so long ago, but I'm going to have to reverse that. There's some really good stuff in that magazine of late. We're going to start by quoting Bruce McCall's Entry from Shouts and Murmurs of a week or two ago. This was a fictional piece dedicated to the uh, origin of the footnote. McCall said, Scholars disagree on the exact date when the footnote began. However, as the eminent radio tune detective Dr. Sigmund Spayeth once said, Scholars disagree on everything. Well, they do, don't they? In fact, we'll jump from there to Bertrand Russell, who once said, even when the experts agree, they may well be mistaken. I hooked up that quote to an article from The Economist I've been saving since last January that explained why it was you could alleviate rural poverty in the third world by urging people into the cities. Well, it seems to me they've been doing that for quite some time now, and it, you know, I'm not sure that it's alleviating rural poverty. But uh, there's a few experts out there that would disagree with me, who, as Bertrand Russell points out, may well be wrong. Mr. McMillan is quick to point out that, well, you have to admit, rural poverty is no longer rural poverty when it moves to the city. Then it becomes city poverty. All right, we ended last week's program with a bunch of things we mentioned we wanted to get to but didn't get to. So let's see if we can get to them on this week's show, shall we? Starting with the song that ended last week's program, which was Steely Dan's Kid Charlemagne. A pretty nifty piece of music, if you ask me. I decided to look the lyrics up for reasons I can't fully explain. 
and was a little bit surprised to note that the first track of Steely Dan's The Royal Scam, Kid Charlemagne, was written about Owsley Stanley, a manufacturer of high-quality LSD. Also, the, he was the time and sound technician for The Grateful Dead. Now, forgive my ignorance, all you deadheads out there who know all of this stuff already, but I think for, for most of us, this came as news and prompted me to take a look at some of the writings about the legendary Augustus Owlsley Stanley III, the LSD chemist and audio maestro who not only created the Grateful Dead's wall of sound and inspired the band's dancing bear iconography, but also created the drugs that sparked the spirit of that era. Wonderful pieces by Seth Ferranti, which have appeared in Rolling Stone and elsewhere. Talk this up, and I want to take a few minutes to... Uh, to run through it, if you don't mind. I think this comes from Rolling Stone. I'm, I'm not clear about the printout. But said Seth Ferranti, though not a household name, Augustus Owsley Stanley III, a.k.a. Bear, was an underground hippie legend who some say is largely responsible for the zeitgeist of the 1960s counterculture movement thanks to the ultra-pure LSD he manufactured. Put it this way, if Bear wasn't on the scene, there would literally be no acid in Tom Wolfe's The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. Great book, by the way, if you've never read it. Said the piece, his influence was omnipresent, even if below the radar of pop culture canon. This article, which I'm quoting from, is in reference to a book that had just come out by Robert Greenfield, titled Bear, The Life and Times of Augustus Owsley Stanley III, which was timed to come out about a decade ago in conjunction with the 40th anniversary of San Francisco's Summer of Love. And, you know, we didn't say enough about the 50th anniversary of it, which was last year. Well, let's talk more about Owsley. Ferranti asked author Robert Greenfield how Bear got interested in both taking and manufacturing LSD. His answer was, The insane genius of this human being was that he was like a rebel without a cause. He never fit and was a complete outsider. He was brilliant at everything. He'd been in the Air Force. He worked as a rocket engineer. At the same time, he was really kind of a lost soul and didn't have a place to find himself. Then, somebody gave him half a dose of pure Sandoz acid, and it was beyond anything he'd ever taken before. At the time, he was taking classics at the University of California, Berkeley, and after his LSD experience, he went to the Bancroft Library and spent a couple of weeks reading all the existing literature on LSD. He then began to manufacture acid, synthesizing the purest LSD ever to hit the streets. Author Greenfield note that when making LSD, it's not like Walter White cooking meth. It's a very, very difficult chemical process. And Owsley was so obsessive that the glassware he used when he made the acid was designed especially for him. The acid he created was so powerful, clean, and pure that he became the supplier to Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters, as Tom Wolfe explains so well in his wonderful book. There was a concert in 1967 labeled The Human Being. It was an event aimed to join together various sects of the counterculture movement. And a lot of them were tripping on a brand new batch of acid Owsley had created called White Lightning. The first batch of which, when he created, consisted of 800,000 doses, an extraordinary amount. John Lennon became a fan. He sent a cameraman to the Monterey Pop Festival with the express purpose of bringing back enough Owsley acid to last him a lifetime. John Lennon was terrified he wasn't going to have enough to last the rest of his life and he only wanted to take Owsley's acid, which was given to him in a lens case. The Beatles then tripped for the next three weeks, which led directly to the creation of... Ah, 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 
not a Beatles historian. It may well be the Beatles had taken acid before that, but I'm sure they liked Owsley's product. Everybody did. Anyway, I recommend when you have some free time to read up on this interesting character, particularly because, well, of this exchange between the two authors. A lot of people have said that LSD was what helped technologists create the internet. Do you think it actually helped pave the way for the web? Greenfield answered, Steve Jobs famously once said that taking LSD was one of the most important things he'd ever done in his life. The author interviewed Steve Wozniak and came away with the thought that, well, a lot of simulation of the human brain is what's involved in what became the internet. And he opined that without LSD, I don't think these people would have had the vision of how to do this. So the world we're living in now has been totally influenced by the use of LSD. He went on to add that John Perry Barlow, who founded the Electronic Frontier Foundation, is one of those people who crossed over from the world of the Grateful Dead and acid into the world of the computer. He's living proof of the relationship between LSD and the digital universe. During the Summer of Love, there were many other acid chemists making acid, but if you understand the LSD experience and how powerful and overwhelming it can be, the question is, if people weren't using the real stuff, the pure stuff, would they have gotten to the place they got to? Well, we don't know the answer to that, and we don't know how, how Donald Fagan and Walter Becker got interested in Owsley, enough to write Kid Charlemagne. But I'm betting that some of you out there know the answer to that. So inform us by dropping a line at info at radioparallax.com. Now, we do advocate you dropping us a line, but not necessarily dropping acid. I must confess, yours truly has never indulged. But uh, there's still time. I am curious. I'm put off by what Richard Feynman once said, that he was intrigued by LSD, but that he really enjoyed thinking. And things that messed with your thinking was something that gave him pause. Well, maybe we could contact Yoko and see if she's got any extra doses from John Lennon. There's your bad idea of the month. Thank you. Oh, yeah. By the way, Owsley's acid was also evidently put in the hands of Jimi Hendrix. Whether it inspired Purple Haze, well, we don't know. Since we're talking about humor from the New Yorker and the Internet, which we were, by golly, I would like to go back to the New Yorker for their Shouts and Murmurs section in the current issue by River Clegg, which is, well, it's just too good to pass up. The title is New Social Media User Guidelines. Let's start with Twitter. Said River Clegg, all Twitter users must now check a box indicating whether they're white supremacists or comedians. It'd just be easier that way. And Instagram. Effective immediately, users of Instagram must be at least one of the following at all times. In Greece, getting married, eating an expensive looking meal that, surprise, is actually homemade, Smiling, the carefree smile of the young and beautiful, or showing off a new tattoo. But now it has to be a good tattoo. LinkedIn. From now on, all LinkedIn users must occasionally use LinkedIn. And my personal favorite from River Clegg, Facebook. Where to begin? He says, look, we know that Facebook has let a lot of people down lately, and we're sorry. Really, Electoral meddling, enormous data breaches, that feeling of hollowness that users are invariably left with after logging off. We regret it all. And we're going to do better. Facebook started out with one simple, noble mission. To psychologically atomize the global population for our own economic benefit, all while doubling down on the Orwellian claim that we're bringing people together. 
That was the plan. We had no idea that it was going to lead to this tangibly worse world we now inhabit. He goes on. We figured the rise of social media would at worst just create a new existential malaise that we could make billions of dollars from. Anyway, looks like that ship has sailed. Good stuff. But in spite of the position of the shouts and murmurs section of the New Yorker, we have this from The Week, which is a, uh, a reprint of something that appeared in Recode.net, where an author, Kurt Wagner, posed the question, would you let Facebook peer around your living room or kitchen? Well, you'll soon get to decide. The social media firm last week unveiled Portal, a $199 smart speaker and video screen that will compete with Amazon's Alexa and Google's home devices. Portal comes with a high-def screen, a built-in camera, and four microphones, and some impressive video calling capabilities. Its smart camera automatically zooms, automatically zooms, pans, and focuses as people move around the room. The company promises a host of privacy features. Oh, pardon me a minute. <laughs> yes, what could possibly go wrong? Facebook says calls will never be recorded or seen by Facebook. Uh-huh. But noted Kurt Wagner, after a full year of privacy and security scandals, the tech giant might struggle to persuade users to put a portal in their home. Let us continue our detour into the tech world, shall we? You'll be pleased to know, if you don't know already, that it is now possible to download the Jack in the Box mobile app, which the company says will allow you to unlock exclusive offers and skip the line inside. This has surely got to be a major breakthrough for America. Imagine all the time Americans are spending waiting in line at Jack in the Box. And given the continuing series of concerns we have expressed on the air about what's up with the millennial generation who seems unable to do some things, we have to thank Elise for the little item she sent us, which was labeled Millennial Anti-Theft Device. It was an automobile stick shift. Which is not surprising. People who don't want to actually drive a car certainly don't want to shift a car if they, were ha if they had to get in one and drive it themselves. And for Subaru fans, I'm sorry to report that the 2019 Forester doesn't even make a stick shift available. Yes, no manual transmission, no turbocharged engine. Motor Trend noted the 182-horsepower four-cylinder engine disappoints. It's loud under acceleration and takes an inexcusable amount of time to get to highway speeds. Now, there's a ringing endorsement. Would help someone if they put a stick shift back in it. And um, speaking of perhaps, I don't know this is the right word for it, limited abilities of people that have grown up pampered by the Internet, I, uh, I emailed a millennial not long ago saying that I wanted to talk about a few things on a, on a phone call. And I was told, just send me a text message. And in fact, it would appear that voicemail is going the way of the dinosaur. People prefer using texts, chat apps, email, and they don't want to leave you a message. Article in the East Bay Times by Ethan Barron a couple months ago quoted Nora Lara, described as a 50-year-old employee at Santa Clara County Superior Court, who's very definitely not a millennial, but said, but quoted it, quoted, Nora is saying, let's say I get a phone call from my brother. I'll ignore it, and then he can text me. When people leave me voice messages, I just delete them without even checking. If they want to get a hold of me, they can text me. Well, if there ever was a case where I hope somebody misses out on the phone call announcing that they have won the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes, this would be the person. 
actually that was a big scam and I think they sent they sent letters out to people and I'm not sure anybody ever really won those things are they texting now? Uh, I, I do not know. But I do know, <laughs> you'll be glad to hear this, fans of texting, that you now have an option to text to 911. At least if you live in San Mateo County. Evidently, a week or so ago, they've hooked up every law enforcement and fire agency dispatch center to receive and respond to mobile phone 911 text messages. You know... One reason I don't like text messages is you can only put a small amount of data and send it off and wait for the reply. And that really lengthens the time necessary for any meaty, weighty sort of communication, which to me seems like it would be a downright disadvantage when somebody's bleeding out on the kitchen floor. Anyway, this does not strike me as a particularly good idea. And speaking of really bad ideas, how about this one from New Scientist? Last August 25th, Joshua Haugego wrote a piece titled Goodbye Cash? With the subheadline, Banks and Governments Are Toying with Killing Off Physical Money. Said Mr. Haugego, that might not be such a good idea. The author, the author sensibly posed the question that while digital money might not solve all the problems of cash, it will bring about a whole new it will bring about a whole slew of new ones. You know, I thought about this piece this very morning when I was getting a cup of coffee at my local 7-Eleven. And as always seems to happen, the person or persons in front of me in line get out a bank card. I'm standing there with cash in my hand. And what the clerk has learned to do is nod at me behind the person who's fumbling with their card so that I can come over complete my exchange of cash for items and get out the door before they then go back to deal with the person who's typing in numbers and waiting for their bank to communicate with them. At least not by text messaging. I figure I'm losing a couple minutes a day on this, which translates to, let's just say, a quarter hour a week, which works out to, in the course of a year, spending over 12 hours needlessly waiting for somebody to work an ATM card instead of paying with cash. Time itself is money. Which is why the banks want you to do this. Governments want you to do this. It's more convenient for them, I suppose. There's an argument being served up that this will really cut down on on illegal activity. Would people use cash to, like, you know, exchange it for drugs and things? But all that aside, here's, here's the big problem I see with this. If you're not using cash, your transaction inevitably involves a third party who must necessarily track what you're doing and how much you're spending. Also, where you are, as Mr. Millen points out. There's also the matter of a bank run. If all of our cash is being done, being used electronically, well, bad news might prompt everybody to try and transfer their cash from one institution to another, which would be one hell of a way to destroy a bank by having a run on it, and to do it in no time flat. Of course, I suppose somebody would work up some software that would stop all the transfers and crash the whole system if, uh, if that started up. And and what about the fact that we're going to have a Carrington event at some point in the future? There's going to be a solar flare that's going to hit the Earth and it's going to knock out our electronic means of communication for a while. When that happens, and it's, it's a matter of when, not if, it's going to happen. When that happens, wouldn't it be a good idea to have a little bit of cash on hand? Just saying. Anyway, anyway, we think they better research that one a little more closely. And speaking of research in the tech world, here's an item that's bound to make you sad. New scientists noted a few months ago 
that mean robots can help you solve tricky tasks. The article notes that cruel robot overlords get more out of their human subjects than nice ones. The mere presence of an unkind robot seems to improve some cognitive abilities, more so than being watched by a friendly robot or no robot. Let's hope the good people at Google don't make too much of this research. Anyway, this is all rather artificial. They set up a task where people were uh, were identifying colors on a screen, and they got feedback from a humanoid robot. And if the robot was programmed to answer all questions negatively or positively, it led them to being seen as either mean or friendly. Well, the cruel robots made people better at the task. The article concludes by noting, they probably won't work in every situation. Well, <laughs> let's hope. Here's another study from the world of science that has me scratching my head. Research done by Daniel Goldman at Georgia Tech University and colleagues placed 30 ants into a transparent container filled with soil-like particles made of glass. For 48 hours, the ants created tunnels, entering and exiting them hundreds of times to extend the networks. As they watched, they discovered that 30% of the ants did 70% of the work. Goldman said only a few would do the majority of the work, with the rest just hanging out, trying to avoid clogging up the tunnel. To further understand this, Goldman and his team tested out different strategies with four excavation robots. One, dug okay. Two, dug okay. Three was kind of okay, but with four, the robots couldn't get anywhere. They were getting in the way of each other. It appears to be proving the old adage that too many cooks spoil the broth. Anyway, Goldman said, however, this smart team made their robots that kept causing clogs unless some took the back seat. The results suggested to them that when groups of individuals work together, the best strategy may be for some to hang back. I think we've all experienced this. All right, and something else I wanted to follow up on from last week's program. I mentioned a piece I dug out titled The Battle of Smoot Hawley, a cautionary tale about how a protectionist measure opposed by all right-thinking people was nevertheless passed. This came from the December 20th, 2008 issue of The Economist. Of course, the world economy was reeling at that point in what was to be known as the Great Recession, which had just begun. But this article concerned itself with how governments can do the wrong thing and make things worse. This is especially relevant today as Donald J. Trump is initiating a trade war with China and everybody else whom he claims is treating us unfairly. But to quote rather briefly from this editorial from 2008, 10 years ago, Even when desperate, Wall Street bankers are not given to groveling. But in June 1930, Thomas Lamont, a partner at J.P. Morgan, came close. I almost went down on my knees to beg Herbert Hoover to veto the asinine Howley Smoot tariff, he recalled. That act intensified nationalism all over the world. According to David Kennedy, a historian, Lamont was, was, quote, usually an influential economic advisor, unquote, to the American president. Not this time. Hoover signed the bill on June 17th. The tragicomic finale said that week's economist to one of the most amazing chapters in world tariff history, one that protectionist enthusiasts the world over would do well to study, end quote. The Tariff Act of 1930, which I think was its official name, increased nearly 900 American import duties. It was debated, passed, and signed as the world was tumbling into the Depression. Its sponsors, Willis Hawley, a congressman from Oregon, and Reed Smoot, a senator from Utah, have come to personify the economic isolation of the era. 63 years later, writing in 2008, in a television debate on the North 
American Free Trade Agreement, Al Gore, then Vice President, even presented his unamused anti-NAFTA opponent, Ross Perot, with a framed photograph of the pair. Senator Robert La Follette, Republican from Wisconsin, who I believe had run previously as a progressive for president, called the bill, quote, the product of a series of deals conceived in secret but, edu- but executed in public with a brazen effrontery that is without parallel in the annals of the Senate. The tariff's critics included Franklin Roosevelt. In his presidential campaign a couple years later in 1932, he dubbed the bill the Grundy Tariff after Joseph Grundy, a Republican senator from Pennsylvania and president of the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, who said that anyone who made campaign contributions was entitled to higher tariffs in return. It should be noted that on, of all the calls on Herbert Hoover not to sign the bill, perhaps the weightiest was a petition signed by 1,028 American economists. A dozen years later, Frank Fetter, one of the organizers, recalled their unanimity. Economic faculties that within a few years were to be split open on monetary policy, deficit finance, and the problems of big business were practically all one in their belief that the Hawley Smoot bill was an iniquitous piece of legislation. And it would turn out that as America put this protectionist measure forward, other nations around the world retaliated. The cost of goods went up everywhere, which was not what people needed in the midst of what became the Great Depression. Anyway, in a closing statement, which resonates in 2018, the article notes that uh, the fact that politicians know something to be madness does not stop them from doing it. They were told in 1930, 1,028 times over. I'd have to say that the vast majority, maybe not unanimous, but certainly the vast majority of anyone trained in economics, let alone bona fide economists, would note that things like rent control And yet, here in California, on the November ballot, we have an effort that will allow communities to set up rent control all over the place, supposedly to alleviate the alleged crisis we experience in housing. Well, it might make for cheaper rents for some people in the short term. Anyone that thinks they're going to solve the housing crisis down the road with measures like this, well, that's just... All right. And speaking of other things that are cuckoo in the minute or so that we have left, uh, the Wall Street Journal has noted that only one in three Americans were able to pass a multiple choice test, which is required for immigrants applying to become citizens. Now, they have to pass this test to become citizens, yet when you ask people who are already citizens, only one in three can answer the questions. When quizzed, only 13% of Americans knew when the Constitution was ratified. I have to admit, that's a hard one. Do you know, dear listener, when the Constitution was ratified? I was thinking 1787, but I was wrong. It's 1788. But there's easier ones, like which countries the United States fought in World War II? 60% of Americans, 60% of Americans get that one wrong. And uh, how many justices sit on the United States Supreme Court? Do you know? Number nine. Number nine, number nine, number nine. You know, for democracy to work, you have to have an informed electorate and populace, which is maybe why a lot of people are having some doubts about democracy at the moment. An election a few weeks away, no one can decide whether there's going to be a wave of voters coming forth to vote for the Republicans because they see that Brett Kavanaugh was wronged versus uh, 
everybody else, I guess. All the same. Well, we're going to find out the answer to that one, one way or the other. Anyway, let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.